0: Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37 this evening. And while you're turning there, uh, let me offer my uh, greetings, or greetings not just from me, my wife, Carrie Ann, and our very cute baby, Jacob, uh, but also from our church, Kalamazoo Community Presbyterian Church. Uh, come visit us sometime if you haven't, uh, many of you have, and we thank you for that. It's great to have a partnership with you. Thank you for loaning us uh, your pastor uh, this evening. As I understand, Dale is giving us a little taste of what you've been going through. He's preaching on Psalm 46 tonight. Uh, I saw from the bulletin that's what you heard this morning, and, and I'm doing the same. I'm letting you know, what, giving you a, a little taste of what we've been going through. The last year and a half, we've been working our way through that great book of Genesis, And just a few weeks ago, we we begun the final section with the life of Joseph, and so this evening I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 37, the, the first chapter concerning the life of that great character, Joseph. So, let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word, Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. And Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, are you indeed to rule over us?" And So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, "'Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me.' But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, "'What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and to bring me word." So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan, and they saw him from afar. and Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him, and they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, thinking that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood?' Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son. Many days, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray. Father, now as we have opened Your Word. We ask Your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would see Your truth and know Your truth, that it would transform our hearts and our lives. Would You open our eyes to see Jesus Christ? We ask that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, have you ever felt the burden of being chosen? Have you ever felt the burden of being chosen? Being chosen can sound glamorous and exciting. It can seem like an honor, and sometimes it is, but more often than not, being chosen uh, comes uh, with a burden, with a weight. Uh, Kids, perhaps this week, you've been chosen to do the dishes after dinner. You've been chosen to take out uh, the garbage this week. What joy to be chosen. Uh, maybe you've been chosen to represent your class in a, a regional uh, spelling bee competition. It's intimidating to be chosen. Or some of the adults in this room, you've been chosen, and you've received the letter in the mail, you've been summoned, right? Chosen for jury duty. Maybe you've been chosen uh, for a promotion at work, and, and, and it seems great. Uh, it means better pay. You'll be doing the projects you like, but it also means more hours, more time away from home, more responsibility in overseeing your co-workers, more deadlines. Being the chosen one isn't all it's cracked up to be, is it? At my home church, I get teased by a few people that I use too many Lord of the Rings illustrations. So I don't use them anymore. I just save them for when I go and preach at other churches. So here you go. Uh, there's a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo is feeling the weight and, and the burden of being the one who has chosen to take the ring of power and, and destroy it and Mount Doom. And he shares his frustration in this moment of weakness with his mentor Gandalf, he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf's replies to say this so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Being chosen is a burden. But Gandalf gives this reminder to lift up the thoughts and the spirits of dear Frodo that there are other forces at work in this world besides the, force, the forces of evil. You know, that's not fantasy. That's reality. That, that's truth. In Christianity, in theology, we call that force of good that's working in the world, we call it providence. And that's what the story of Joseph is really all about. That's what the entire story of Joseph is about, beginning in chapter 37 to the end of Genesis. But it's also what this particular chapter that we're looking at tonight is about. So we ask, what is the point of the story of Joseph? Joseph's life, more than anything, serves to teach us about the power of God in and through the providence of God... It teaches us that God is in control even amidst the seeming chaos in life. It shows us that that even in the face of sin, God is sovereign. In many ways, the famous verse at the conclusion of Joseph's story is a fitting thesis statement for this chapter. You remember that line, right, that he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. That's the power of God's providence, Providence is where, as our shorter catechism tells us, it's where God governs all of His creatures and all of their actions for their good. And this is true for Joseph because he belongs to the chosen people of God, the covenant people of God. And it's true for you as well if by faith you have been brought into that family of God. God has given us this account To remind us that, to remind us that for those of us who have been chosen, for those of us who have been chosen by God, no matter what evils may come, no matter the rejection we might face in the world, God's good sovereignty will win out in the end. That's what we're going to see this evening. We begin first by seeing that Joseph is indeed chosen by God. That's the first thing, Joseph, chosen by God. Although he belongs to the chosen people of God, and in that sense, all of the characters, all of his brothers are chosen. Joseph, though, is specifically set apart from his brothers uh, for a special purpose. And as we know from the rest of that, from the story, uh, the purpose is is that he is chosen by God to establish and to protect and to preserve the covenant people. And so how do we see him set apart by God in this chapter? How do we see him chosen by God in this chapter? It's more than just his being the favorite child. Although that is part of it. We get a hint or foreshadowing of God's election there. Uh, Jacob is uh, perpetuating a sin of his uh, parents, if you remember in the Genesis story, his parents, um, Isaac and Rebekah, they play favorites. Isaac's favorite child is Esau, and Rebekah's favorite child is Jacob. Parents never play favorites. It leads to awful things, leads to what we have here in chapter 37, but Jacob is repeating that great sin. He has a favorite now. And it's Joseph, likely because Joseph is the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. And even then it says he's born to Jacob in his old age, so perhaps he favors the younger child just as, as he was, the Jacob was the younger child who was favored over his brother, older brother Esau. But at any rate, one of the ways Jacob shows favoritism is by giving a gift to his son, a special gift, the coat of many colors. This is actually a difficult uh, term to translate. Uh, We get that phrase, coat of many colors, from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's very clear there. It says coat of many colors. But in Hebrew, it's a a little bit more vague uh, or ambiguous. In fact, there's only one other occasion where this word shows up in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel 13, and it's used to describe how the daughters of the king Are dressed. And this has led many people to conclude that whatever it was, whatever this robe was, it was something that was royal. It was something that is fit for a king. It may have had many colors, but probably what we're meant to think of more than a colorful coat is a royal robe. Jacob gives his son a gift, a gift that is fit for a king. And this is what I mean when I say that even Jacob's favoritism foreshadows. God's election. Because God had elected, He had chosen Joseph to one day be a sort of king over his brothers, to one day rule and reign over his brothers. Even though he was the second youngest of the twelve, he would one day rule over them. And that's what the dreams that he has points to also, isn't it? That's the second sign that God has chosen Joseph and set him apart from his brothers. First is this royal robe. Second are the dreams that Joseph has. Uh, first is just the fact that, he's ha- that he has the dreams. That he's even given the, the dreams. Uh, this is nothing short of divine revelation here. This is God speaking to Joseph in a very special way. Speaking to Joseph in a way that, that nobody else receives this kind of communication in, in, in Genesis 37. He's been singled out. In the ancient Near East, it was well understood that dreams were a form of divine communications. The the brothers would have known this. They would have known that that God had set his favor upon their younger brother. But then to make matters worse, there's the content of the dreams. So God shows that he has chosen Joseph by by giving him these, these night visions. But then on top of that, it's why what these visions represent Joseph has two dreams recorded for us in verses 5 through 11, but they're essentially one and the same, aren't they? You hardly need an interpreter. Uh, In the one, he and his brothers are out harvesting grain in the field and, and... The ten older brothers, sheaves, bow in submission to Joseph's sheaf. Uh, Verse 8, if you look there, makes it very clear that they did not need an interpreter. His brothers say to him, are you indeed to reign over us? What are you you talking about, Joseph? Are you trying to say that you're going to rule over us? And it says, and they hated him even more for his dreams and and for his words. They got it. Uh, But just in case they didn't, Joseph said, well, I have another dream. Can I tell you about that one too? This second dream far exceeds the first. This time it's not just the ten older brothers. There are eleven stars. Benjamin, the younger brother, is included. And, And there's the sun and the moon. Mom and dad are in the dream too. Now everybody is bowing down. You get the point. The whole family will bow in submission to Joseph. And so in all of these ways, we see that Joseph is clearly called, set apart, chosen by God. But that is not all he is in this story. The first thing is that we see Joseph is chosen by God. The second is that he's hated by his brothers. And this is what the majority of the chapter is concerned with. Why do his brothers hate him? Is it because he's the favorite child? Well, yes, that's part of it. Verse 4, it says when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than, than all the brothers, they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. That's part of it. But, you know, Joseph's own personality is not helping anything here. Fostered by Jacob's favoritism, Joseph has become overly confident and and arrogant. He's he's a bit of a suck-up to his dad. Did you notice what verse 2 says? He would go and work out in the field, and then he'd bring, it says in verse 2, a bad report about his brothers to his dad. He was a tattletale. And this word translated bad, bad report, could also mean false. He's, He's probably fabricating some details to make his brothers look worse and to make him look better And as we said, he knew the dreams would infuriate his brothers, but he tells them anyway. And so, in a sense, we could say that Joseph had his brother's fury coming to him. And so, why did they hate Joseph? Was it because he's the favorite child? Yes, in part. Was it because, let's be honest, Joseph is a bit of a twerp? Yes, partly. But neither of these are the primary reason that Joseph is hated by his brothers. The primary, preeminent reason that Joseph is hated by his brothers is precisely because he is chosen by God. It's this divine election that produces this fraternal hatred. They hate him because of the dreams and what they know the dreams prophesy. It's the election. That brings the envy and the hatred and the jealousy. God's election does that. If if you don't believe me, then just read Romans 9. Better yet, read Romans 9 to somebody off the street. It offends a lot of people. God's election. God's election is what caused enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Jesus himself speaks of this numerous times in in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. He says that his choosing people, his electing people to salvation is going to cause division. He says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We could add to that list, Jesus came to set brother against brother. That's what's happening in Joseph's story, isn't it? Elsewhere, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Listen to this, though. What does Jesus say? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you. But I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. So here's the message, friends. If you've been chosen by God, don't expect everything to be peachy keen in life. In fact, you can expect the opposite. Because when you are drawn into Christ, that means you are drawn out of the world. You are different now from the world, and the world hates that. No matter what our culture or society might say about diversity, the world is truly suspicious of any and all types of non-conformity. If you don't believe me? Well then just go into any high school cafeteria. And ask, why is it that the band kids don't sit with the jocks who don't sit with the preps? And the reason is because the preps don't play the sports that the jocks play, who don't read the books that the band kids play, who don't dress like the preps. We hate everything that's different from us, right? By nature, we hate everything that is different. And there's no way to dress more different in this world than when God has called you out of it and he's given you the righteousness, the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. You see, you can't be playing for both teams. Friendship with the world means enmity with God, James 4.4. 4. And friendship with God means enmity with the world, but if we've been chosen by God, friends, that means we're, we are destined for something that's so much greater than anything this world could ever offer us. We're, we're destined for a realm where, where sin will be no more. The sin that pervades this place will be completely eradicated. So how could we ever feel at home here? How could we ever want what the world offers us? No, we've been chosen out of the world, and therefore the world hates us. James Boyce says there is nothing, probably nothing, that the world hates more than the doctrine of election. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 37 to Joseph. He certainly does not help anything with his naive and cocky attitude, but God's divine election seals the rejection that he had already faced from his brothers. And it's sad because that means that his brothers, who are fellow members of the covenant of God, are playing the part of the world in this story. So what do they do about it? Well, they plan to kill him, right? Verse 18. They saw him from afar before he came near to them. They conspired to kill him. There's a lot of mention of hate in this passage. We know that to hate somebody is to commit murder in our hearts we will hear that hatred is so great that it, its only outlet seems to be actual murder. Now notice that the ten older brothers, they're out shepherding by themselves without Joseph. Joseph's at home. He's, he's kicking his feet up. He's, he's lounging in that, that nice royal robe. And his dad says, well, I want to know how the other boys are doing. And Joseph, the, the dutiful tattletale, he says, yeah, I'm on it. I'll go. I'll go find them and bring a bad report back to you. And so he journeys out to find them. And as he approaches, they conspire to kill him. And take note of this, brothers and sisters. Joseph, because Joseph has been chosen by God and their authority thus threatened, the brothers conspire to kill him. I want you to remember that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. It's because he's been chosen by God and therefore the brothers' authority is challenged and threatened, they conspire to kill him. And the, the irony is that they're planning to destroy The very person that God has set apart to save them, to one day save them. Now, Reuben and Judah, they step in at different points in the story and and, and try to amend the plan. Reuben says, Well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a, a, a pit, thinking he'll come back later. He'll rescue Joseph and take him to daddy, and then he'll be the favorite. I guess Reuben leaves for a little bit and Judah has a better plan. He says, well, if we're not going to kill him, let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. And verses 23 through 24 describe that violent act of the brothers where they strip Joseph of that stupid robe and they, they toss him into the, the, the pit. And then verse 28 records how they drag him back out. This poor 17-year-old boy, they drag him back out and they hand him over for 20 pieces of silver. And he's carted off to Egypt. And what will they tell Jacob? And what happens next? Uh, some of Jacob's old sins come back to haunt him. You remember that he once tricked his own blind father with his brother's cloak and some goat's hair to steal a blessing. Well, now to garner their father's favor away from Joseph, they bring a cloak dipped in some goat's blood. We read that they sent the robe of many colors and they said, we found this, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now if we see ourselves as Joseph in this story, as those who have been chosen by God, called out of this world, it's a pretty depressing tale, isn't it? Things don't look too good for us. It would be hard to leave this story feeling any sense of encouragement about what life might hold for us. And no doubt this is how Joseph felt as he's heading to Egypt. And some of you perhaps have, have seen the, the musical Les Miz, one of the characters, Fantine, she she sings a song. I dreamed a dream in times gone by when when hope was high and life worth living, I dreamed that love would never die and God could be forgiving. It's this picture of a a perfect world. That's Joseph at the beginning of the story, but now as he's sent off to slavery, he likely would resonate with the end of Fontaine's song, which says, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. There is a glimmer of hope, however. It's tucked away at the very last verse, right? Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It's a little sneak peek for you and me about what's going to happen next in the story. and We know what it means. We know it means that Joseph, at one moment sold into slavery by his brothers, the next moment finds great success and prosperity in Egypt. You know, the brothers, they had conspired so carefully. They thought they'd planned this out perfectly. He's supposed to be gone forever. He's supposed to be destined to a life in the pits. What went wrong? What didn't they know? And they didn't know this, and you need to hear this, friends. This is what they didn't get. That any and all attempts to discredit or destroy God's chosen people will ultimately be used by God through His powerful providence, to benefit His people. Any and all attempts to destroy God's chosen people will be used by God to preserve them. Attempts to humiliate will be used to exalt. Attempts to harm will be used to heal. Attempts to kill will be used to save. The brothers could never have imagined their act of selling Joseph into slavery was actually part of God's hidden hand of providence to bring Joseph authority and power and success and that God would would use that power and authority in excess of Joseph to actually save those very same brothers. Paul says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, for those who are chosen. For those who are set apart. And this is abundantly clear to us as we read the story of Joseph. But the brothers were blind to it at this juncture. Uh, we see in this chapter, as Derek Kinder writes, an Old Testament theologian, Derek Kinder writes this, that there is a human pattern that runs through the Old Testament and culminates at Calvary. Calvary. Here's the pattern, that the rejection of God's chosen deliverers through the envy and unbelief of their own kith and kin is a rejection which is finally made to play its own part in bringing about deliverance. Rejection leads to deliverance. And Kidner is right, this ultimately culminates at the cross, at Calvary, And that's why we're not really supposed to see ourselves as Joseph in this story. We can't only see ourselves as Joseph. That's not the main point. We might be too tempted to think, well, no matter what happens, well, uh, somebody will find me and they'll give me a nice job and I'll become really rich and I'll work out in the end, right? No. We're never promised that in Scripture. It could be that we are called to endure suffering and rejection and the good that God has planned for us, we will never fully know or fully experience until we get to glory. So rather than seeing ourselves as Joseph, we're supposed to see Jesus in Joseph. Jesus is the chosen of God, the chosen of God to protect and to preserve God's people. And yet Jesus is the one who is hated and rejected by the very same. Rejected by the people that he came to save. And Joseph is preparing us to know what God's deliverance from the hatred of the world looks like. And it looks like defeat. It looks like complete rejection. It looks like being sold by your friends into slavery and death for a couple pieces of silver. This is the story of Jesus, isn't it? He comes set apart, chosen by God to this grand work of salvation. He says in John's gospel, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. We know that that like Joseph, Jesus received gifts when he was a small boy. Gifts that were fit for a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh that that foreshadowed that one day he would rule and reign over his people, and yet those people rejected him. You remember John 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Why? Because he was chosen of God. Because he was set apart to lead and to rule over them. Because he claimed to have authority. And what we find from the Pharisees in the gospel accounts is identical to what we find from Joseph's... Brothers, that Jesus is chosen by God and thus their authority is threatened and challenged and so they want to kill him. And that's exactly what they do, isn't it? And what's the reason? What's the charge? Well, it's that he said he was the king of the Jews. It's that he said we would bow down to him. He said he would rule over them. How dare he? Give us Barabbas back. Crucify this arrogant blasphemer. And that's what they did, and they sent Jesus down into death's pit, but not permanently. Not permanently. He would rise again in three days, and it's it's only after the resurrection that we can start to put the the pieces of the puzzle together, and and we can can say, could it be that all this, this senseless and cruel hate, all this rejection that Jesus received, could it all be that it was leading to the moment not of his death, but to the moment of his resurrection, of his glorification, of his exaltation? Was it all leading to this? You know, Peter, he, he preaches that very point in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This, this beautiful sermon, if you'd like, I'd invite you to turn there as we close, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter actually explains that it was the hatred of Jesus' Jewish brothers that was used by God's good providence to bring about their very own salvation. Acts 2 verse 22, Peter says, men of Israel, speaking to a Jewish audience, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But then he goes on, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, to be held by death. Why was it not possible? Well, Peter goes on to quote from, uh, from uh, Psalm 16, which says that, that you will not let, God will not let your Holy One, your chosen One, to see corruption. You hated him because he was chosen by God, Peter says. But he was chosen by God. To save you. And you know what happens at the end of that sermon? And you can look there in verse 47. The Lord added to their number. And day by day, those who were being saved. And verse 41 gives us the number, actually, they were added that day about three thousand. Souls. 3,000 Jews are converted. 3,000 Jews, once filled with hate and rage for Jesus, have now given their lives to their brother and to their king. I want to say to you tonight, friends, that perhaps you've come and, and you hate Jesus this evening. You hate Jesus and, and the things of God, you hate the Christ of the Bible. You know, that fact does not preclude you from salvation. Not if you now see the love that he has for you, the love that he had that would, would cause him to lay down his life for somebody who hated him, for a people who rejected him. See him now as your brother and as your king, and you will be saved And for those of us who have already done that, what comfort and consolation this brings to us, knowing that when we are in Christ, He has faced the ultimate rejection of the world in our place, and He's gone on to to experience the ultimate exaltation from the world. And when we are in Christ, He shares that exaltation with us. He was made like His brothers in every respect. He was made like you and me in every respect so that he through death could destroy the power of death and bring us with him into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word to us. Thank you that all scripture points to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who indeed came chosen by you. And the eternal counsels of the triune God, the covenant of redemption, selected and chosen to come as one of us, to come as our brother, and though we would hate him and despise him, though he would be a man of sorrows, he would still die for us. Lord, would we look to the cross, would we see His loving sacrifice, would we repent of our sin of, of neglect, of rejection, of hatred, of apathy, and would we bow before our Lord, our Savior, our brother, and our King. We ask this for His sake. Amen.